Hi, everyone, and welcome. Do you know what time it is? That's right. It's time for your midweek Bible study. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It's great to be with you once again. Thanks for taking time to join me. Today is Wednesday, August 2nd. We're continuing in our Bible study of 1 Timothy, and we're going to be studying the end of 1 Timothy today, chapter 6, starting with verse 2b through 21. And we're going to talk about false teaching and true riches, as well as Paul's final instructions. But as always, before we do, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for the privilege of studying your word today, and thank you for all that have come to join. Lord, I pray your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name. Then everybody said, Amen. All right, turn with me in your Bible or Bible app to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 2b. That's the second part of verse 2, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 21. Let's find out what the Apostle Paul has to say. Teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt and they've turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. But you, Timothy, are a man of God, so run from all these evil things. Pursue righteousness and a godly life along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. And I charge you before God, who gives life to all, and before Christ Jesus, who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate, that you obey this command without wavering. Then no one can find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. For at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only Almighty God, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. He alone can never die, and he lives in light so bright that no human can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him, nor ever will. All honor and power to him forever. Amen. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they'll be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so they may experience true life. Timothy, guard what God has entrusted to you. Avoid godless, foolish discussions with those who oppose you with their so-called knowledge. Some people have wandered from the faith by following such foolishness. May God's grace be with you all. All right, let's take a look at verses 2b through 10, and we're going to talk about Paul's instructions regarding false teaching and true riches. Here's the opening verses here, verse 2b and 3. They read, Teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. 
Here's our opening question. Once again, Paul repeated a command for Timothy to do something. What was it, and why did Paul repeat this command? The command was for Timothy to teach the truths that Paul was giving and encourage everybody to obey them. Paul wanted to make sure that Timothy understood that the false teachers were denying the truth, the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Any teaching different from the Christian doctrine based on God's word was false teaching. Any teaching different from the sound instruction of the gospel of Christ is false teaching. But Paul's concern here was not about the form of the instruction, but that the false teachers disagreed with what Jesus Christ had taught and demonstrated. They erred in contradicting and discounting Jesus. False teaching is ungodly teaching. It cannot result in a godly life. Our application of God's word will always depend on how accurately we've understood the teaching of God's word. But these false teachers were not merely mistaken in their doctrine. Their evil went deeper, or rather, it originated in deeper problems. They were not well-intentioned teachers who had made unfortunate mistakes. Their basic motivations were evil. Next up, verse 4. It reads, Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. Here's the question. This verse contains seven descriptions of false teachers. What are they, and what do they mean? First off, the false teacher is arrogant. Do you see that word? Pride is at the root of those who continue in false teaching. Rather than follow all of God's word with the proper conclusion, such people place themselves above the scriptures. Second, the false teacher lacks understanding. They are so convinced of their own position, they cannot understand the truth. This is a natural companion to the next flaw, since those who resist correction often go to great lengths to defend their errors. Third, false teachers quibble over the meaning of words. In other words, they often drift towards bickering, arguments, and debates over non-essential issues. The false teacher enjoys arguing about the words of Scripture for the sake of the words themselves, not for the sake of the truth. This is a similar issue to what Paul describes in Colossians 2.8. It also echoes the sentiment of Titus 3 verses 9 to 11. Interestingly, this trend towards quibbling is said to produce the rest of the flaws Paul will mention. Fourth, a false teacher is marked by jealousy. He or she desires what others have. Money and material issues will be mentioned explicitly later. So this is most likely a reference to envy of others' spiritual respect, reputation, or image. The false teacher wants to be treated as a guru or a sage and envies others who are treated as spiritual teachers. Fifth, a false teacher is filled with division. Division includes disagreement or controversy. This seems to be a broader issue than the arguments mentioned so far. An ability to live and let live is often a hallmark of a false teacher. Such persons often treat very poorly those who cannot agree with them on every point. Sixth, the false teacher is a person who slanders others. This includes spreading misleading, dishonest, unfair, or blatantly false information. There are more ways to create division among Christian believers than just open arguments. Slander, whether literally verbal or simply through our actions, is that kind of dividing force. The false teacher is especially quick to speak about the problems of others while being sinful themselves. Seventh, a false teacher has evil suspicions about others. The type of suspicions are not specified here, but could include accusations or the attitude of someone consumed with conspiracy theories and thinks everyone else is out to get them. This makes sense in the context of a person who's totally unwilling to consider their own flaws. A person convinced their position cannot be wrong may well assume that all who oppose them do so like a personal vendetta. 
This again leads to the false teacher participating in further slander, bickering, and dissent. Next is verse 5, and it says, These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they've turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. The question is, the final two descriptions of false teachers are in this verse, so there's going to be nine in total. What are those last two, and what do they mean? The eighth description uses a unique Greek word, diaparatribe. This is translated as friction, constant disputing, or even perverse disputings. The related English word, diatribe, it describes a harsh, bitter verbal attack on someone or something else. This is the exact opposite of the encouragement described in Hebrews 10.25. False teachers are wrong in the way they think, the conclusions they make about the truth, and the way they interact with others who might not agree. The final description associated with false teachers is their view of spirituality. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. False teachers seek to make a profit for the sake of profit from the leadership role they have. Paul was just making it clear that those who primarily serve the church as leaders and teachers should be paid for this. This allows them to focus more attention on the needs of the church family. However, this applies to those who serve in humility, with sincerity, and with a mind to honor God. In contrast, the false teacher sees spirituality as a business venture or a money-making tool. This could include housing at the home of Christians, eating food from those who hosted them, and money donated to them from these Christians. Other New Testament authors noted the same thing, such as John in 2 John 1, verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to your meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, don't invite that person to your home or give any kind of encouragement. Anyone who encourages such people becomes a partner in their evil work. So enabling the work of false teachers by supporting them is, in and of itself, a bad choice. Next, we're going to look at verses 6 through 10. And in these verses, it's a brief explanation of a proper Christian view of wealth. In contrast with the sinful lives and desire for profit by these false teachers, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness is a theme throughout 1 Timothy. It's fact it's used nine times in this short letter. So let's look at verse 6. It says, Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. The question is, the false teachers thought godliness was a means to get rich. What does Paul say true godliness is? Paul says true godliness is great wealth in itself when accompanied by contentment. One's religion does not come and go with the uncertainties of material wealth. A faith in Christ with contentment is the wealth, independent of one's checkbook and possessions. The false teachers had it backward. True godliness, or true religion as some other translations will say, is faith in Christ and requires training and develops inner spiritual qualities while at the same time being apparent in the way we relate to others. It exhibits true character exemplified in the way we serve others. Contentment grows from our attitude toward living God's way. To have contentment in Christ requires four decisions from the events and possessions of our lives. First, we must focus on what God has already allowed us to have. Two, we must disregard what we do not have. Three, we must refuse to covet what others have. And four, we must give thanks to God for each and all of his gifts. If we fail to make these decisions, our contentment will diminish. Finally, the great wealth that motivates the false teachers with neither lasting nor capable of bringing contentment. Their earthly profits would be left behind. What brings great wealth has to do with eternal values. When material treasures become our focus, we quit contributing to our eternal accounts. Whatever gains we may experience in this life mean nothing if they cause us eternal bankruptcy. 
This statement provides the key to spiritual growth and personal fulfillment. We should honor God and center our desires on Him, and we should be content with what God is doing in our lives. Next, verse 7, it reads, After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. Here's the question. Based on this verse, can you achieve ultimate contentment based merely on this life? Well, the short answer is, no, we can't. The correct perspective on material possessions, things like money, houses, clothing, vehicles, jewelry, land, things like that, remains eternally the same. They can't last forever. We can lose, break, or ruin them in this life. As Paul wrote, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave. Next is verse 8. It says, So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. The question simply is, what is Paul's point in this verse? Look, all humans have basic needs. Believers and unbelievers alike all need food and clothing and shelter. That's actually implied in this verse, I believe. The difference should be that when all believers' basic needs are met, they ought to be satisfied and content, requiring nothing more. In contrast, unbelievers are driven by society's standards and desires. They can't be content with just the basic needs because they must always strive for more. Next is verse 9. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. The question is, this verse describes three things that happen to those whose desire is wealth. What are those three things? First, although every person is tempted in some way, those who desire wealth fall into temptation. The urge to get rich or to seek material prosperity at all costs leads to disaster. In contrast, believers are to resist temptation and live for Christ. Second, those who desire to be rich are trapped. The Greek word here is pagida, an animal trap, usually set with a rope or net used to capture an animal lured in by bait. In a similar way, those who desired riches followed temptation until it led to doom. This is another hallmark of Christian teaching regarding sin and morality. Satan will often use temptations to lure us away from what we should be doing in order to trap us in the consequences of our own sin. The third point is closely related to the second. Longing for riches amplifies many foolish and harmful desires. Though not explicitly listed here, some of these could include things like the urge to cheat, steal, or lie in order to increase one's income. History is filled with examples of people who used dishonesty, crime, or deception in an effort to become rich. This also repeats a character flaw of Paul associated with false teachers. These temptations plunge them into ruin and destruction. Desiring wealth can ruin a person's life and in some cases lead to a premature death. Greed can lead to the destruction of one's personal relationships, physical health, and spiritual health. And it can lead to more serious consequences such as involvement in crime, pain, and suffering for our friends and family, even the revenge of other greedy people. Next up, verse 10, it says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered away from the truth and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Here's the question. What does Paul say is the root of all kinds of evil, and what are the consequences of this desire? Right off the bat, let me just say, Paul is not saying money is the root of all kinds of evil. I hear that all the time. Maybe you do too. That's not what he's saying. Paul is saying it is the love of money that's the issue. We all know that money is not in and of itself evil. In fact, money can do many good things for furthering God's kingdom. 
I believe Paul's point here is that not all sin is the result of material greed. Clearly, he's saying it is the love of money that can lead a person to virtually any other sin. Greed can enhance, inspire, and amplify the temptation of any other sin and lead us into disaster. This is why Paul continues to say that believers tempted by a love of money can leave a close walk with God. They're prone to exchange holiness for a focus on building wealth for personal gain. Now let's take a look at Paul's final instructions in verses 11 through 21. Starting with verse 11, it says, But you, Timothy, are a man of God, so run from all these evil things. Pursue righteousness and a godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. The question is, what does Paul call Timothy in this verse, and what six godly characteristics does Paul say Timothy should pursue? Paul calls Timothy a man of God. The phrase man of God was also used of Moses, Samuel, and other prophets in the Old Testament. However, in the New Testament, only Timothy is referred to as a man of God. That's high praise indeed. Then Paul calls on Timothy to pursue six godly characteristics. They are pursue righteousness and a godly life. This means doing actions in line with God's character. These overlap in meaning. The first emphasizes obedience, while the second emphasizes the God-centered motives for obedience. Next are faith and love. These are fundamental to Christianity and basic to Paul's teaching. The qualities of faith and love are constantly under improvement by the work of God's Spirit. Our capability to trust must grow and be renewed, and the development of our love for God, as well as for others, it involves a lifelong construction project. Believers are to pursue these in the sense that we practice what we already understand, while praying that we might understand and practice more. The next characteristic is perseverance. Perseverance in persecution and trouble are vital for all believers. Timothy would need an extra dose of perseverance as he led a large congregation through difficult days ahead. Pursuing perseverance would require a willingness to undergo suffering. And the sixth characteristic Timothy should pursue is gentleness. This seems to be an old quality for Timothy to pursue. And although he's already timid, Paul told him to deal firmly with false teaching. But gentleness can reveal more power than roughness or harshness. Perhaps by mentioning this, Paul was affirming a positive quality that's already a part of Timothy's character. The false teachers could have no power against a righteous, gentle leader with the truth on their side. Next is verse 12. It says, Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you've declared so well before many witnesses. The question is, in this verse, Paul provides two vitally important commands. What are they? First, Timothy is to fight the good fight for the true faith. The verb tense in Greek implies that this fight is an ongoing, continual process requiring diligence and discipline. Timothy would continue a fight already begun by others. Believers today continue the fight for which Timothy and Paul offered their lives. Paul's second command for Timothy was to live as if he has eternal life already. Now, eternal life had already been given to Timothy, as for all believers at the moment of conversion. When a person confesses faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, eternal life begins. Paul's reminding Timothy of what he had declared so well before so many witnesses. The specific incident Paul had in mind is unknown, but the fact that he and Timothy had a long association would have given Paul any number of occasions to observe Timothy's faith in action. Next, verses 13 and 14. They read, And I charge you before God, 
who gives life to all, and before Christ Jesus, who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate, that you obey this command without wavering. Then no one can find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. The question is, here again, Paul gives Timothy a command. What is it? Paul commands Timothy to obey what he just told him in verse 12 and to obey it without wavering. This is referring to Timothy's continual pursuit of godly character. Then no one would be able to find fault with him. And the command only needs to be followed until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again, because at that time the good fight will be over and the battle will be won. Verse 15 reads, For at just the right time Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only Almighty God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The question is, continuing his thought from verse 14, what is the point Paul is making to Timothy in this verse, verse 15? Paul starts out by saying that the right time of the second coming will be according to God's timetable. From Paul's early teachings and writings, he believed this return would occur very soon. But at the time of this letter to Timothy, Paul realized that his return might not occur before his death. It would occur in God's own time. As Paul contemplated the glorious display of love and power that would be revealed when Christ returned, he acknowledged God's awesome and transcendent nature. This verse may have been words from an early Christian hymn or even a Jewish blessing. In any case, Paul's reference to God's plan immediately filled his mind with a word vision of the one he served with his life. The phrase, King of all kings and Lord of all lords, reveals that there is no way to ascribe more power and authority than to God alone. Next, verse 16, it reads, He alone can never die, and he lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him, nor ever will. All honor and power to him forever. Amen. In this verse, Paul lists several of the notable characteristics of God. What are they? First, Paul says that he, meaning God, alone can never die. In other words, God is the only one having immortality in himself. He is not subject to death. Only God is inherent in his being. Because he is eternal, he gives us eternal life. The brilliant glory of God's presence creates a barrier of light so brilliant that no human can approach him. Even if the light were removed, God remains invisible, unseen by human eyes. This doesn't mean God is unknowable, but that his holiness keeps us from seeing him. Next is verse 17. It reads, Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. The question is, here Paul briefly transitions to how Timothy should instruct wealthy Christians. How does Paul say Timothy is to do that? Timothy was to instruct wealthy believers to not be overly proud or arrogant. They should be taught not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. In contrast, their trust should be in God, the one who provides all that we have. Interestingly, Paul notes that God richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. His attitude towards wealth is also reflected in Ecclesiastes 5.19, which says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. This is the consistent message of the Bible. Wealth is not bad and it can be a gift from God. However, it's to be used for God's honor rather than to make a person proud. It also comes with its own set of temptations and drawbacks. Next is verse 18. It reads, Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. The question is, here Paul continues his teaching to wealthy Christians. This verse provides four commands to wealthy Christians. What are they? 
First, wealthy believers are to use their money to do good. This means practicing hands-on giving to other people. People are sometimes more effectively helped by personal involvement than by giving of material objects or money. Second, wealthy believers are to be rich in good works. This means their good works should be numerous or abundant. Just as being rich involves having a great quantity of money, being rich in good works should mean a constant, abundant emphasis on doing good for others. Paul expected wealthy Christians to use their influence to give back and to help others. For the Christian, money is never to be gained simply for the sake of having more money. It is always meant to be used for the glory of God. Third, wealthy believers are to be generous to those in need. Again, this command is general, leaving many applications. However, it's clear that this is an expectation, not a suggestion. This eliminates all excuses for selfish hoarding of resources or a lack of mercy toward those in need. For example, 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 teaches, If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Fourth, wealthy believers are to be ready to share with others. Because a person has much, he or she should be willing to share what they have with others, a trait seen from the time of the first church back in Acts chapter 2. We can experience a deep fellowship when believers make their resources available to one another. Being rich in good works may not necessarily benefit our financial position, but in the long run, it will be a far more valuable asset in God's eyes. Next is verse 19. It reads, By doing this, they'll be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so they may experience true life. The question is, Paul continues with his instructions to the wealthy believers. What will be the result of their faithfulness in their financial giving? Paul says the rich must make certain they're storing up their treasure in heaven, investing their riches in eternity. This kind of investment includes tithing and giving offerings in the church, but it's much broader than that. Any unselfish giving to meet the needs of others, especially the poor, creates a deposit in eternity. The person without God who selfishly pursues wealth will lay up a treasure of God's wrath. In doing so, those who give are those who provide a good foundation for the future and experience real life as it's meant to be. Because God is the source of all life, all those who live his way experience real living. Next up, verse 20, it says, Timothy, guard what God has entrusted to you. Avoid godless, foolish discussions with those who oppose you with their so-called knowledge. The question is, Paul begins this verse with another personal appeal to Timothy. What does he say? One last time, Paul exhorted, encouraged, and urged Timothy to guard the teaching and instructions given to him. No matter how influential the false teachers would become, Timothy would remain guardian of the truth, teaching it without wavering and without compromise. Paul's ministry on earth would eventually end with his death. Timothy was entrusted with the truth of the gospel so that he, in return, would pass it along to others. A guardian of the truth should not be involved in godless, foolish discussions or spend time talking with those who oppose him with their so-called knowledge. That's the false teachers. And now the last verse for the day, verse 21. It reads, some people have wandered from the faith by following such foolishness. May God's grace be with you all. Here's the last question. This final verse consists of two parts. What are they? First, Paul finishes his thought begun in the last sentence, a reference to false teaching such as Gnosticism. 
The word translated wandered from the faith is the Greek word asteheo. It's communicating the idea of turning or deviating. Those who held the false teachings, as mentioned in the previous verse, have turned away from the true faith and gospel that Paul had taught. Timothy is to avoid their tragic end. Paul then ends this letter with his familiar words, May God's grace be with you all. These are also the concluding words of Colossians 4.18, 2 Timothy 4.22, and Titus 3.15. Paul didn't end his message with a statement on false teachers. Instead, he chose to wrap up this letter to his young protege, Timothy, with a final emphasis on God's grace, an appropriate and encouraging thought, both for Timothy and for his readers right now today. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of today's study and the conclusion of 1 Timothy. What an incredibly great journey it's been. We've learned so much. Here's some closing thoughts for you. The book of 1 Timothy provides guiding principles for local churches, including rules for public worship and qualifications for elders and pastors, deacons, and special church workers, in this case, widows. Paul told the church leaders to correct incorrect doctrine and to deal lovingly and fairly with all people in the church. The church is not organized simply for the sake of organization, but so that Christ can be honored and glorified. While studying these guidelines, don't lose sight of what's most important in the life of a church. That's knowing God, working together in harmony, and taking God's good news to the world. Next time, we'll begin 2 Timothy. We'll start out with 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, and we'll discuss Paul's greetings and encouragement to be faithful. Thanks once again for taking time to join me. Have a great rest of your day and week. I'll see you right back here next time. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.